0: We're going to be reading this morning out of Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15, and we're going to be doing it out of the New Living Translation this morning. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, "'Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is the voice shouting out in the wilderness, "'Prepare the way of the Lord's coming.'" Clear the road for him. This is this messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And he and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan river as Jesus came up out of the river or out of the water he saw the heavens splitting apart and the holy spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy the spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by satan for 40 days he was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. This is the reading of God, and you may be seated. Mark's
1: Gospel. So, If it's your first time joining us, uh, welcome. And um, we talked about this last week, but we are dedicating this year to deepening our discipleship to Jesus. And we're going to teach through Mark's gospel and use it, as Christians have done for centuries, as a template to understand in a deeper way who Jesus is and what it means to be his apprentice, what it means to be his disciple. Now, last week we did a bit of introduction into the book of Mark, showing how Mark is a book of deep mystery. Um, and this mystery is really around the person of Jesus. And it, Mark, in his very subtle way, is calling us to come a little further up and a little further in, in order to discover who Jesus is and in order to follow him in his kingdom mission. We said last week, the challenge of Mark is to let this gospel be a guide to learn to stand before the mystery in silence. And we talked about how many times in, in the church and just maybe like in just scholastic learning of religious books we we, we're all about information and we don't sit with it we don't sit with the tensions we just want to read you know maybe a summary of the gospels we want all the questions answered we want all the holes filled in mark will not let us do that he wants us to acknowledge the limitations of our understanding he wants us to think again in order to draw us closer as true disciples As we wonder at the mystery of our God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this morning we begin our journey of following Jesus through Mark's gospel. Now I think it's good to always set the context for scripture. So we've just read the beginning of the gospel. John is the voice crying in the wilderness. What was happening in Israel at this time? What was it like to hear John just step on the scene out of nowhere and proclaim this message? Well, As we come to the close of the Old Testament and whether that is the Jewish order of seeing Chronicles as the end, uh, the return from exile, or that is the Christian order of Malachi, the Old Testament leaves us wanting and waiting. It leaves us waiting for God's true king, waiting for God's kingdom to be reestablished, waiting for the end of the exile waiting for the judgment of God on sin and evil, <clears throat> and finally, for the nations, as God promised Abraham so long ago, to be delivered from idolatry and be brought back to the one true God. Now, when the curtain rises on March drama, we find that Israel is still in exile. Yes, they are in the land, but they are still under foreign occupation. They are at a moment of crisis. It's been years since any divine intervention or revelation. And despite God's past favor, the people are in a state of powerlessness, confusion, and need. They are sheep without a shepherd. Israel is waiting for the end of exile and waiting for redemption. Enter Mark's Gospel. The Gospel of Mark starts like this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now Mark uses this phrase, the beginning, and it's a bit of a weird way to start a story, especially since Mark does not start at the beginning. It'd be one thing if he said, in the beginning, or this is the beginning of the Gospel, and he goes back to Mary, and the, you know, the vision from the angel, or if he goes back to Joseph, or if he even goes back before that, like John does, to the beginning, so why does Mark start like this? Well, this is the first of many shoes that Mark will drop for us. And the phrase, the beginning, is supposed to awaken echoes of the first phrase of the Bible. Any of you guys here for the Bible conference with my professor, Gary Bashears? Yeah, it was great, huh? It was awesome. But he talks about how the Bible does this thing. Um, and Tim Mackey, the guy from the Bible Project, kind of coined this phrase of biblical hyperlinks right? So the idea would be like, you, you find a passage in the New Testament, and if you were on the internet, you click it, and it would take you back to the original sighting of this passage, right? So in the beginning is a hyperlink to Genesis 1, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was this earth-shattering moment. It was a moment like never before in history. God did a new thing. He spoke, and life came into existence, What Mark is telling us is that this is what is happening in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, a new beginning is happening, but this is the beginning of beginnings. Jesus is a new beginning to Israel's story, but he's also a new beginning to the story of the world. And if, if you will, if you want to nerd out for a moment, in Jesus, God is rebooting the story, right? The grand narrative of Israel. And it's like, yes, Star Wars, right? I'm going to nerd out for a minute. Okay, so how many of you guys watch the new... Star Wars movies, maybe even your spouse, your nerdy husband, your nerdy boyfriend, your nerdy friend dragged you to Star Wars, made you watch it with them, right? So, think about the latest Star Wars movies. It's the same old story, but subverted, right? We see the land speeder going across the desert, and always, that's the hero, but all of a sudden, you know, the camera rises, and it's a girl, what? You know, like, you know, but the music's the same, and it's the same story of good versus evil, but this time it's not about the Skywalkers, and we're like, boom, and if I just ruined it for you, so sorry, but you know, you're a little late on the draw, so whatever. It's the same story being told, it's Jedi's, it's dark and light, side of the force in conflict, but it's being told in a new way. I would say for, you know, our modern listeners, Jesus is a reboot to the story of Israel, he is taking up humanity's story. He's picking up the themes of God's acts of salvation in the past, but in a new and subverted way. And just as in Genesis where God initiated creation, bringing about his kingdom reign on earth, here at this time, God is initiating New creation and the reestablishment of his kingdom. So what Mark is telling us by this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, is God is taking decisive action in Jesus Christ to redeem and to save the world and bring about new creation. Mark goes on to talk about the voice who cried in the wilderness. I'll read it again. It's just so powerful. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he plunged them into the Jordan. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey, and John announced, "'Someone is coming soon!' He is greater than I am, so much greater than I am. I am not worthy to stoop down like a slave to untie the straps of his sandals. I have plunged you into the water, but he will plunge you into the Holy Spirit. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now Mark attributes this quotation to Isaiah. Though, Jerome, an early church father, made fun of Mark for this, because as any, anybody who knows their, you know, any salt, the Bible, uh, knows that this is not just Isaiah. Mark is quoting from Malachi 3.1, he's quoting from Exodus 23.20, and the question is, doesn't Mark know his Bible? Why does he do this? This is just sloppy writing. This is what many have thought in the past. And commentators have come up with all sorts of reasons for this, but I believe that the most convincing one is that Mark attributes this passage solely to Isaiah because Mark wants us to expect that this story will focus on the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision of a new exodus and the establishment of God's kingly rule In Jerusalem, and this is the theme of the latter half of Isaiah, what is commonly called Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah. It's also quite interesting to note that in reconstructions of first century synagogue readings of Torah, which you guys know what Torah is, right? What is Torah? It's the first five books of the Bible. Along with those, a massive two-thirds also included prophetic readings from Isaiah, Think about that. Uh, Remember, I think it's Luke uh, 3 or 4. Jesus walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He picks up the scroll. Where were they reading? What we call Isaiah 61. Massive two-thirds of the Torah readings, first-century synagogues, included prophetic readings from Isaiah. The reason for this popularity is most likely because no other scriptural book offered such an extensive presentation of Israel's future hope. Of Yahweh's personal coming and power to rescue his oppressed people from exile, leading his people home and dwelling among them in a restored Zion to which all the nations would come. So get this. Mark is not stupid. He didn't make a mistake. He's saying, listen, the story I'm telling you, I want you to put Isaiah in the back of your mind. So church, I challenge you, go this week and study through that latter half of Isaiah. Isaiah, starting in Isaiah 40, read on through. It will give such context to the book of Mark and what Mark is telling us about the career of Jesus. Now, Mark continues with this Isaiah theme in the next verses. Mark brings us to the baptismal waters of Jordan, where, John, is calling all of Israel to repent and confess their sins. John's baptism, we know, was an invitation to the nation of Israel to be cleansed from past sin and have a new beginning. And it's this beautiful picture, we might not have picked up on this, but it's this beautiful picture of Israel going back to the baptismal waters of the Jordan. The spot, I've been there multiple times, where John is baptizing is the exact spot where Israel crossed over with Joshua, to receive the promised land. And so in a sense, what he is doing is, it's it's like this renewal ceremony. Let's get back to the story. Let's get back to our roots. Let's get back to those cleansing waters and prepare ourselves to enter into the promises that God had always promised to us. It's this beautiful thing that, that John is setting up here. Now one day, along comes Jesus. And Matthew's gospel tells us that he insists on being baptized by John, and John's kind of like, no, 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 I, I, you're different, like, this isn't right, he knows that something is out of proportion here, but Jesus insists, and so Jesus is baptized, and we, the reader, we already know that Jesus doesn't need to repent, right, he is the son of God, Mark's already told us this. So what is this all about? Well, in the baptismal waters, Jesus, again, is taking up the mantle of Israel. He's taking up their story in order to fulfill and accomplish all the promises of God to Israel and to the nations. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, something radical happens. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. There's a whole lot going on here. Okay, So the words, you are my Son, anybody know where that's taken from? Psalm 2. You are my Son, God says to his King, this day I have begotten you. I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth. It's a song about God and his anointed king who will rule not just Israel but over the nations and the ends of the earth. He will rule them with a rod of iron. But then there's more. The words whom I love or the beloved would have taken us back to one of Israel's favorite stories to tell. Which is the story of Father Abraham and Isaac. Abraham Take now your son, your beloved son, and go to the mountains of Moriah and there make sacrifice to me. Takes him back to Isaac, the son of promise, which is a story about redemption and sacrifice. And lastly, the one in whom I am pleased or the one in whom my soul delights is a reference to Isaiah 42. It says this: "Behold, my servant, whom I lift up; my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations." Guys, this kind of stuff just like makes my skin crawl. Like I'm like. <laughs> Like, this is just like, this is Bible nerd, like, mania. This is Bible nerd Disneyland, right? Like, when Mark brings all of these together, trying to tell us who is Jesus, who is he? He is the promised king of Psalm 2. He is the promised son who makes redemption by sacrifice. He is the anointed one who will be lifted up and will draw all nations to himself. See what I What I was talking about last week with Mark? He doesn't, say, he doesn't say like, oh, hey, for reference, go check out Isaiah. Hey, for reference, go check out Psalm 2. You have to be a Bible person. You have to know. You have to be curious. And as you are curious, as you lean in, more will be revealed about the person of Jesus. But this isn't all. Jesus isn't just the messianic king or the son who makes redemption by sacrifice. Mark notes that just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, ripped open. What does that mean? What does that even look like? Heaven being torn open. Well, whenever the Bible uses this sort of language the idea is that the veil between heaven and earth is being pulled back you know a lot of us we think of like the bi- or you know we think of like heaven or hell or earth we think of it in terms of like realms you know and i mean there's this like story of the russian cosmonauts going up into outer space right and what did they say like we came into outer space And God is not here, therefore God does not exist. They just thought if they kept going and going and going and going, eventually they reached the throne of God, I guess, right? And sometimes we think that way, don't we? We think, oh, heaven is this far off place, far, far removed in another galaxy, far, far away. But that's not actually the way that the Bible interprets it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then it seems that in the fall, there is this separation. We're actually told in Deuteronomy that God took his place in the heavens, and he gives the earth, in a sense, to the gods, to the divine beings, to rule until a time. And so there's this separation, this veil that comes between heaven and earth. But many, many times in the biblical story, God pulls back the veil. He steps on the scene. He works. He speaks. He acts. He moves. He redeems. But this moment of being heaven being torn open is unique in the biblical story. Isaiah actually prayed this prayer. Why don't you turn if you have a Bible to Isaiah sixty three, fifteen? prophet isaiah says look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation do you get the idea here that god is far away look down from heaven and see give us your focus your gaze pay attention to us where is your passion where is your power the stirring of your inner parts You know, when you get mad, sometimes your stomach boils, right? The guts and your compassion, they are held back from us. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a short time. But now our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would tear open the heaven and come down. That the mountains might quake as your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your enemies and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This is a powerful moment in redemptive history. What Mark is telling us is that the cry of Isaiah is finally being answered after six to seven hundred years. God has at this moment at the baptismal waters of Jordan Torn open heaven. Mark is saying to us that this prayer is being answered. It's happening in Jesus. In Jesus, the fabric of heaven is torn open and God is among his people. He has torn the heavens and he has come down This is what the gospel is all about, that at this moment in history, an irreversible cosmic occurrence has taken place. At this moment, heaven has broken into Earth, and this is the great turning point of history. Do you know what our modern culture believes is the turning point of history? Anybody? The Enlightenment. You know why? Because we came out of the dark ages. The dark ages. People wonder if this is even real history or not now. The dark ages that the oppressive church plunged us into and it was only by science and reason that it would come to where we are. Do you know, just do your history, but do you know that there were no scientific advancements that happened during the Enlightenment? These guys were all a bunch of writers. That's all they were. A bunch of philosophers and writers. They didn't accomplish anything. But the sciences, medicine, all these things were going on. It was the monks, it was the church that was doing these things. But the claim of our society is that the turning point of history, the greatest moment is when we cut off the cords from the church and from religion and we stepped into our own scientific reasoning. And this is the moment. This is the apex of history. The Bible says, no, no. The turning point of history is when the creator God finally stepped onto the pages of history to bring about redemption. To do what all the world had been waiting for since Genesis 2, even though we might not have known it. And this is the truth. What has been opened cannot be closed. What is torn is never The same again, because God is on the human scene. And all over these introductory verses, the language Mark uses is telling us that what God has done, that this is it. He is tearing open the heavens and coming down to bring his long-awaited salvation he, in so many different ways, and we didn't even cover all of them. Mark is trying to get us to see this is it. This is what all the prophets, this is what Moses, this is what David, this is what everyone wrote about. This is what everyone was longing for. It has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. According to Mark, this gospel is God's answer to the cry of Israel past and Israel in the first century. The tearing open of heaven, the descent of the Spirit on Jesus, has now ushered in the last days. And God's return to rule over Israel once again. Now... We're not going to go into this this morning. It's because, I mean, just even doing this, just like, this is so much. I bit off way more than I could chew. But the first thing that Jesus does, right, after his anointing, it says that the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and there he faces the devil, and he is there with the wild animals, or he's where the wild things are, right? So... The first thing that Jesus, the spirit-anointed Messiah, God in the flesh, does after this revelation is to go into the wilderness to face humanity's greatest enemy, the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. And we don't have, I, we don't have time to talk about this this morning, but I will say that Mark, more than any other gospel writer, records Jesus' interaction with the demonic realm. Clearly, Jesus is here to cleanse the world of evil, to take on the great enemy of humanity and creation. He is here not to expel the Romans or the Gentile rulers as first century Israel expected, but to take on the powers of darkness, the evil behind all evil, And as we see all throughout the book of Mark, when evil and darkness come into contact with Jesus, it trembles at his word and his presence. I'm just going to give like one of my Bible studies away. It's like months down the road. But I was just reading about Legion. You guys know that story? Fascinating way to interpret scripture. But you you start reading the story and Mark's like, so there's this guy. He's demon-possessed. The moment he sees Jesus, he runs toward him. What do you, you know, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of God? Are you here to destroy me? And it it notes a few times there, no one can bind this man. No chains can hold him. No one can, can, can subdue him. And then the next word is Jesus. And it's almost like Mark is trying to create this, like, contrast for us. It's like, Who can help this man? Who can save this man? Who can bind this man? No one, nothing. No one, Jesus. The strong man, he can bind this power. And it's so interesting that the man calls himself Legion. This is the name of the Roman armies. And what does Jesus do with Legion? He casts them to the pigs, the unclean animals, and they are driven into the sea. I believe that what Mark is doing here is he is looking back to Isaiah and to the prophets when it talked about the Gentiles being driven out of the land, that Jesus is doing this, but he's doing it the power behind the power. It's the demonic power behind Rome. It's demonic power that holds people into slavery. Jesus is here to deliver humanity. Humanity. He is not for Gentile over the Jew or Jew over the Gentile or male over female or this or that. He is here for humans who have been made in his image to deliver them, to rescue them. It's this incredible way that the New Testament writers interpret the story. Again, it's subverted. You have to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Now when Jesus comes back from the wilderness, we're told... John was arrested, and Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news, saying, the time promised. The time promised by God is here at last. I I guess I probably could have just skipped everything else I just said and just said, look, Jesus just said, it's all here. (laughs) What everybody's been waiting for, what everybody's been talking about, longing for, writing about, hoping for it's come at last, all the promises of God. The kingdom of God is here. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, God's good news, this term good news, would have had its own significance in Jesus' day. Because Caesar Augustus coming to power was proclaimed as good news or evangelion, gospel, Caesar claimed to be the son of God, who brought peace to the whole world through his reign and the Pax Romana. You guys know this, right, from world history. Mark, then, is subverting and challenging that claim, saying that, actually, the true son of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, And has established the true kingdom of peace. So, Jesus' announcement, the kingdom of God is here, it has its own significance for that day against what Rome proclaimed, what the Gentiles were hoping in and thinking about, but it would also have an older, deeper, and richer meaning, of course. And where do we go? Where do you think we're going? Isaiah, good, you guys are getting so good at this. I'm so proud of you, church. Again, it is Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Next time you can just say that and you'll probably be right. Uh, So in chapter 52 of Isaiah, we have this vision of the people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem watching and waiting for a messenger who is coming from Babylon. And it says this messenger brings the good news. Telling Jerusalem and Judea that the exile is over, the judgment is complete. And so Isaiah writes, How beautiful are the feet running on the mountains of the one who brings good news, who proclaims shalom, who brings glad tidings, who tells, or excuse me, who proclaims salvation, saying to Zion, Your God reigns, or your God is king. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices together. They shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion. They will see it with their own eyes. They will burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will bear his holy arm In the sight of all nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, we talk about this a lot at refuge, but the kingdom of God uh, or the kingdom of heaven is a just massive biblical thing. Idea That is woven throughout scripture and so to proclaim something like the kingdom of God is here or the kingdom of heaven is here is this hugely packed statement and so for the Jews this referred to this exact moment God's final return to Israel to rule over the world as its rightful king. But because this is Yahweh, the one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but who is a God of justice and mercy, this also meant the healing of heaven and earth. It meant absolute wholeness and well-being for everyone from the least to the greatest. It was wholeness and well-being physically, spiritually, socially, economically, and so the kingdom of God was bound up with that concept that we often hear, that, that word we often hear, shalom. It's not just an absence of evil or pain or suffering, but it is the positive piece of when people live in harmony, deference, service, and love for one another. That's what shalom was. And, and the Jews would say, true shalom will come when God reigns. The kingdom is shalom. Those were the ideas. And so also, I guess in a negative sense, that would mean that what everything that is broken and wrong with this world is mended and made right. Poverty, oppression, misery, extortion, sin in all of its various forms being brought to an end, being judged. And an ushering in of absolute flourishing prosperity and blessing of the creation. Jesus is claiming that that kingdom was here. So he's saying, in me, God's kingdom is on the move to bring about the restoration and redemption that God had always promised. And Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. So, what does it mean when Jesus says that? What does it mean as followers of Jesus, as you, however you label yourself, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple, I'm a Christian? What does it mean when Jesus says, repent and believe? I really appreciated what N.T. Wright was saying about this, and I've found this to be true as well. He says, when Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news toward the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, there's almost an exact parallel to that in Jewish writing. Josephus talks about a time when he went to Galilee in the 60s of the first century, and he said to one of the brigand leaders, repent and believe in me, the exact words, What Josephus was saying was, give up your way of doing stuff. I have a better idea. Come with me. Join me. That's what those words sounded like in Galilee in the first century. So when Jesus told people to repent, he didn't mean have some kind of sad religious experience. Feel bad about yourself. Let it all settle in how wrong you are and how God is here to judge you. No, he meant you're going the wrong way and you need to turn around. How different is that from the way that we normally associate this word of repent? Repent. Right? It's like we go back to, like, Jonathan Edwards and the Puritan sinners in the hands of an angry God. A God who calls us to repent. Yes, he does. A God who calls us, hey, turn around. Turn around. You're, hey, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Think about, like, my kids. Like, if we're on a walk somewhere, you know, and there's multiple trails, and we've kind of got our family path that we walk if we're going up to Taylor Mountain, or we walk in the graveyard by our house. I know for some people that's kind of weird, but we do. It's nice hanging out with dead people. Um, But many times, you know, it's like our kids are just wild and they're running all around and it's like, hey, hey, turn around. Come on, you're going the wrong way, right? It's just a normal thing that you do. It's not this heavy rebuke. Hey, feel bad for you have gone the wrong way. You know, it's just like, hey, turn around. Let's go this way. How many of you have ever heard Jesus's invitation like that? How many of you have heard it as an invitation You've probably heard it as rebuke. But this is not what's happening. And unfortunately, we have this hyper-reformed view. I was reading in my kids' devotions the other day. Oh, my gosh, this drove me nuts. It's like, you know, that scene where there's a big catch of fish with Peter and Jesus, and Peter falls on his knees, and he says, Depart from me. I'm an evil man. And the the writer says, That moment, Peter knew he was in the presence of God. No, he didn't. He didn't figure that out until after the resurrection. Okay, sorry. And then he says, and he knew that God could destroy him. What? Like, no Jew is expecting that. Read the Psalms. It's like, if that's what they were expecting, they say, God, stay. Don't tear open the heavens and come down. You stay right where you are, we're good, Right? But the Jew believed that when God stepped on the scene, it meant righteousness, it meant grace, it meant mercy, it meant peace, it meant healing. That's what it meant. And unfortunately, we have committed this character assassination of our God who steps on the scene and he says, Children, you are going the wrong way. Come with me. Sheep, you have no shepherd. Come with me. You've been going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing. And if you're going to be part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up your way, your path, what you think is right, what you think is wrong. As I have elaborated on, our Western culture, we've relegated this call of Jesus to feeling sorry about our lives and giving mental assent that he is God and we need forgiveness. Now, Jesus is God. We do need forgiveness because we have wronged one another. We have been sinned against. We've also sinned against one another. We do need forgiveness of our sins. Absolutely. But you know what? The Bible sometimes uses the word believe in terms of mental assent, Like, okay, believe that God will do this. Believe, you know. But more often, and especially in the context of salvation, when God says believe, what he actually means is give me your allegiance. Be faithful to me. And that's what the word pistis means means. It can mean faith as a mental assent. It can mean faithfulness or fidelity. It can mean allegiance. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, he says, the kingdom of God is here. Turn. Give me your fidelity. Give me your life. Give me everything. Pledge allegiance to me. Matthew Bates, he wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Highly recommend this book. He says, true faith or belief is not an irrational launching into the void, but a reasonable action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. With regard then to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, or faith in Jesus, we should speak instead of fidelity to Jesus as cosmic Lord. Think Psalm 2. Or allegiance to Jesus the King. As Mark uses this gospel to undermine the claims of Caesar, who's ruling? Who rules Jerusalem at this time? Who rules the land of Israel? Who rules the world? Caesar Augustus. Jesus steps on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is here. As Mark uses his gospel to undermine the claims of Caesar, guess who else would be included in that? All rulers, all powers. Maybe for some of us who have heard the gospel more times than we can count. Today, the Holy Spirit is calling you to reconsider how Jesus does and did through his life, death, and resurrection. What tanks and bombs can never do. What the United Nations. What the U.S. What no president or Caesar Charity and all goodwill throughout all history could do. That Jesus in weakness, suffering and death establishes the kingdom of God and ushers in a kingdom of righteousness, justice and peace. You guys, I don't know if you guys remember. I don't know if you remember anything I say um, sometimes. Um, But towards the end of the year, I say a lot of stuff. I don't know towards the end of the year your biblical literacy i talked about the gospel being the climax of the story and i think that again we forget this sometimes we're we're, we're thinking that something more needs to happen but the point of the new testament is to say it's happened. Again, it's that idea of the Enlightenment. The turning point of history has already happened. The climax of the story of the world has already taken place in Jesus Christ. When God steps on the scene again, the story's over, it's done. And I wonder how many of us are actually giving weight to the fact that this is it. There is no government. Oh, my gosh. That has never happened to to me, anyway. So sorry. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, so awkward. Uh, this is it. It's right. This is it. Um, but yeah, that this is this is the climax of the story, and we're waiting for something else to happen. Where, uh, or or we've now thought, okay, well that's good and all that Jesus saves me from my sin and one day I go to heaven and, and you know am I sin forgiven and have a paradise you know a pad somewhere safe forever and ever and ever it's not it you've missed it this is what the gospel says the kingdom of god is here turn give your allegiance to the kingdom Either you are in or you are out. Now, God receives any and all who will come to him. But this is it. And it's not something that we give mental assent to. It's something that we give everything to. As Charles Wesley said, love so amazing, so divine. What Jesus did there on the cross, (laughs) tearing open the way to the kingdom of God for us. He says it demands my life, my soul, my all. It demands my everything, my total allegiance. I'm not sure if anyone here has ever gone through the naturalization process of becoming an American citizen, but I do believe that what the original gospel was after was something like this and so i'll just say this and then i'll read this either the gospel is the hope of all the world and we give our lives in allegiance to it in the kingdom of god or it's some other kingdom that we are giving our allegiance to and that's why jesus uses this language later either you are for me or you are against me this is what it looks like to give me your allegiance to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow me listen to this the u.s government understands this how did the church miss it I, I changed the words. You'll probably, yeah, notice. <laughs> I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have there to, here to for, whoa, well, here to for, I don't talk like this, sorry, been a subject or citizen That I will support and defend the gospel and the kingdom of God against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear arms on behalf of the kingdom of God when required by his law. That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the kingdom of God when required by his law. That I will perform work of kingdom importance under civilian direction when required by his law. That I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. I cannot imagine swearing my allegiance to anyone, any government, but the kingdom of God alone. You just look at what is going on in our politics right now. Do you trust these people, any of them? I'm not inclined to, because God has promised us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, I know there's some violent stuff in here, right? We're going to bear arms on behalf of the kingdom of God or behalf of the U.S., it's interesting, Paul tells us, as Christians, we are engaged in a fight. He says, but the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty in God. They are for pulling down strongholds. They are for pulling down a- and def- anything that would come against the knowledge of the one true God. Giving our allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom means that we seek the kingdom first. That we seek God's righteousness being implemented into our lives and our families and our marriages and our friendships and our work and our city. It means that we go after people who are ruining their lives through lies and falsehood. And we speak the truth to them. That we say, like Jesus said to us, turn You're going the wrong way. Join the kingdom of God. So in closing, what would happen if the people of God gave themselves in this way to the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God? What if we did what Peter said? that this became for us our living hope. What God has done in Jesus, what God plans to do to the whole world, that this is what we are living for, that this is what we are about, that this is what we are pursuing, that this is what we are implementing in our lives, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus. What would it look like for us to esteem the gospel as the greatest thing in all the world, the hope and desire for every person, and then to give our lives to join God in his kingdom mission? To make known everywhere the real presence and coming of the kingdom of God into this world. One last quote, and then we'll close. Again, Matthew Bates He says, human salvation is directed towards God's intention to restore individuals, communities, and the world as the kingdom of God continues to break into history. When we give allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become new creatures set free from the enslaving power of sin. As we worship the Son of God, who is the authentic, original image of God, our own distorted, Adamic image, is transformed so that we are personally renewed. As we are transformed into the image of Jesus the Christ, we bring God's wise service, stewardship, and rule to one another and to the remainder of creation. Church, as we leave here today, I pray that this week, you will consider again the claims of this gospel what Mark is claiming about the good news of Jesus Christ, and that you will turn and give faithfulness and full allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. So Lord, as we close this morning, I cannot do justice, Lord, to the potency, to the power, to the quality of redemption and healing of this creation that you will bring. Paul, who was much wiser than any of us and much more learned, said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. We haven't even imagined the things that God has for us. How glorious and amazing that new creation will be. How Again, how potent the healing power of the kingdom of God is. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, as we leave here today, that you would stir up our imaginations. As we look out at our city, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to touch down in Santa Rosa? What would it look like for the healing power of the gospel to reach our neighbors and their broken lives? that we would consider again the claims of this power through the gospel. And, Lord, we would join you, join you, Lord, as you triumph over all evil, all enemies, and you lead us through suffering into your kingdom. And so, Lord, you have set the table for us this morning a reminder of your body and your blood that has been given so that we can turn and follow you, that we can join your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your shed blood that cleanses us from sin. We thank you for your body given for us in our place. And again, Lord, would this be a homecoming for us? Would this be recalibrating for us to give our allegiance, our fidelity to you and you alone. You are worthy, O oh Lord. You are worthy. So Lord, now as we do that, as we pledge you our allegiance in taking the bread and the cup, receive our worship. Lord, speak to us individually. Give us words of wisdom and knowledge and insight Blessings to bless one another with. Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Empower us for this kingdom work, we pray.